As a historian, I spend a lot of time reading texts that were written long ago. For me, this is a bit like finding a message in a bottle while exploring the seashore. I know someone wrote the message and put it in the bottle, but the details about who they were, where they lived, and what led them to write the message are often shrouded in mystery. I get to play the role of detective, putting together clues from what's in the message, what the bottle looks like and the paper, and where I found it, to try to piece together a sense of the world that author inhabited and how it relates to the present. I regularly teach the history of Christianity, and one of the questions that most interests me is around the topic of discipleship. What did discipleship look like in different periods of the past? How did Christians in different places and time periods pursue spiritual growth and experience of God? In times of spiritual renewal within a given culture, what are the texts that shaped the unfolding of events? Today I want to explore with you a couple of classics that have shaped my understanding of discipleship, texts that played a significant role in times past in the discipleship of believers, and texts that, I think, have much to say to us today as we seek to grow in faith and holiness. I want to give some consideration to how the Church today might benefit from the kind of discipleship that these texts offer, but also to note the limitations on our ability to appropriate ancient models of discipleship. There are two books I will share with you today, two messages in bottles, if you will, that offer us guidance in the spiritual life. The first is the Philokalia, which has been called the Bible of Orthodox Spirituality, and the second is The Way of a Pilgrim, a spiritual classic of the Russian Orthodox tradition. In this book, the Philokalia plays a prominent role in the journey of a 19th century Russian peasant as he wanders around the Russian countryside, trying to understand what it means to pray without ceasing. In a sense, the first book becomes a character in the second book, but I'll come back to that idea in a bit. The Philokalia itself is an anthology of texts written by the spiritual fathers of the Eastern Orthodox tradition between the 4th and the 15th centuries. Most of the texts were written prior to the 9th century, and during the 18th century these texts were compiled by two Greek monks, St. Nicodemus of the Holy Mountain of Athos and St. Macarius of Corinth. It was first published in 1782 in Venice. The name Philokalia means the love of the beautiful, love of the excellent, love of the good. This compilation of texts provides instructions on how to follow the spiritual path or the way of holiness. The contributors used a variety of metaphors to describe the end goal of the process. Some understood it as perfection or holiness, others described it as illumination, and still others understood the goal to be union with God. St. Maximus the Confessor wrote in his treatise on the Lord's Prayer, When we pray, let our aim be this mystery of deification, which shows us what we were once like, and what the self-emptying of the only begotten Son through the flesh has now made us, which shows us, that is, the depths to which we were dragged down by the weight of sin, and the heights to which we have been raised by his compassionate hand. Although the authors use different terms and phrases to describe the goal, these can generally be understood as all falling under the orthodox doctrine of theosis, the process by which we become like God. Andrew Louth describes it this way, At the heart of what it is to be human is an openness to God and his love through which we are taken up into the divine life and discover there what it is to be human, what God intended human life to be, communion with him in the spirit. 
In spite of their varied language with regard to theosis, the process leading to it is surprisingly unified in these texts. The contributors wrote in different times and places, but they held many points in common about the process of discipleship. I will point to four assumptions shared by the writers of these texts, and then I want to look at how these assumptions play out in The Way of a Pilgrim when the main character uses the Philokalia to aid him in his own path of discipleship. And I use the word path there quite literally because the pilgrim, by his very nature, is on a journey. The first and perhaps most fundamental common assumption held by the authors of the Philokalic texts was that the teachings detailed within these writings would be practiced by those actively living within the sacramental and liturgical framework of the Orthodox Church. Sunday morning worship, experience of the Lord's Supper, the study of the scriptures, and the guidance of spiritually mature members of the clergy were the backdrop for this approach to discipleship. Even more specifically, the context in which the Philokalia was written and first used was that of Orthodox monasticism. To some extent, these texts were written by monks and for monks. Although the practices promoted within the collection are clearly not to be excluded from the lives of lay people, there are certain aspects of the monastic life which make it more conducive to the teachings of the Philokalia. One of the primary characteristics of the monastic lifestyle is discipline. The teachings in the collection require a great deal of discipline, both to engage in the regular practices inscribed therein and to avoid other practices of a sinful nature. In his contribution, St. Maximus the Confessor wrote, When, through self-control, you have straightened the crooked paths of the passions in which you deliberately indulged, that is to say, the impulses of sensual pleasure, and when, by enduring patiently the harsh and painful afflictions produced by trials and temptations suffered against your will, you have made the rough ways smooth and even, then you may expect to see God's salvation, for you will have become pure in heart. The vows of poverty and chastity are obvious examples of how the monastic lifestyle is infused with opportunities to develop self-control and discipline, and as such it is uniquely prepared for the practices that are taught in the Philokalia. Along with the need to grow in self-control and discipline, monasticism also promotes a posture of obedience to the head of the monastery. In our world of autonomous, individualistic selves, we see the role of a spiritual director as one who can give good advice when we want it, one who will have theoretical insights into our experience, and one who can set the example of intimacy with God. But we maintain a strong sense of our own independence as decision makers and authorities over our own lives. By contrast, the monk is expected to take a posture of submission to the authorities. The spiritual elder in the monastery was not just a guide, but a father or mother in the faith. The philokalia assumes the need for guidance and the role of the spiritual director in the process of climbing the divine ladder. Indeed, many of the texts are intended to aid spiritual leaders who are giving guidance to those who are young in faith. Obedience to the abbot of the monastery was and is a foundational aspect of the monastic life, a starting point for growing towards spiritual maturity. Another feature of monasticism which makes it a more conducive environment for the practice of these habits is the role of silence and solitude in the way of holiness. According to Abba Philemon, the more the intellect is stripped of the passions and purified through stillness, the greater the spiritual knowledge it is found worthy to receive. These basic qualities, the need for discipline, 
the role of the spiritual elder, and the importance of solitude do not limit the use of the collection to those engaged in a monastic life. However, the writings were directed at monks, so even for those lay people who would pursue the practices taught in the Philokalia, participation in the liturgy and sacraments of the Orthodox faith are foundational aspects of the context in which these spiritual practices will bear fruit. And of course, the monastic life included and includes a rich engagement in the liturgies of the divine office and in the sacramental life of the church. All that to say that the context of discipleship is not vague or mysterious. It must be rooted in the community of faith and by the practices of the faith. A second common assumption held by the contributors to the Philokalia is related both to the context in which its teachings were promulgated, as well as to the practice of solitude. I refer to the framework of Russian hesychasm. Hesychasm is the pursuit of stillness. The Greek word hesychia refers to the solitary life, the lifestyle of a hermit devoted to contemplation and constant prayer. The hesychast is committed to the practice of inner prayer, aiming at union with God on a scale beyond images, concepts, or language. The realization of this union is pursued by many hesychasts through the repetition of the Jesus prayer. The Jesus Prayer is a one-line prayer which states simply, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Callistus Ware, Bishop of Diocleia, writes, The center and heart of the Hezekiah's life is to be the Jesus Prayer. This prayer is adaptable and has taken many forms. Its varieties are also seen in the writings of the Philokalia. Some Hezekiahs use shortened versions of the Jesus Prayer, while others focus solely on the name of Jesus. All of the contributors to the Philokalia use the invocation of the name of Jesus in prayer. In Philemon's discourse, it takes its most common form, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me. For Ilias the Presbyter, absorption in the Jesus prayer was an indication of an intellect devoted to God. St. Philotheus of Sinai, in his texts on watchfulness, explained the purpose of using the name of Jesus in prayer. He ascribed it to the words of Jesus himself, who said, Without me, you can do nothing. He suggested that through the remembrance of Christ, a scattered intellect could become focused and purposeful. Hesychists also use particular psychosomatic techniques in combination with the Jesus prayer. According to St. Simeon, the new theologian, this technique involved three parts. The first step was the adoption of a seated posture in which the chin was resting on the chest and the physical gaze, as well as the focus of the intellect, was concentrated toward the navel. The focus on the navel here was merely for the purpose of directing the attention toward the center of the body. The second step was the regulation of the breathing process in which the disciple was instructed, restrain the drawing in of breath through your nostrils so as not to breathe easily. The final step was to search with the intellect for the place of the heart, where all the powers of the soul reside. For some hesychasts, the control of the breathing process was used to prepare for prayer as a means to focus the concentration. For others, the regulated breathing was to continue in synchronization with the prayer itself. These psychosomatic techniques were sometimes seen as controversial by the translators of the Philokalia. When Feofan the Recluse prepared his Russian translation, he believed that these teachings should be taught by a spiritual father directly and did not provide a full translation of the passages referring to them. Perhaps this hesitation was not ill-founded. Vladimir Losky notes that some Western misinterpretations of hesychasm have taken these practices to suggest that the hesychasts believed the soul was located in the navel. 
This is clearly not the case, since the Hesychists identified the heart as the seat of the soul. The physical techniques were merely for the purpose of disciplining the body and bringing focus to the mind. Like the broader context of Orthodox tradition and monasticism, hesychasm provides an important framework for understanding the practices in the philokalia, the importance of solitude, inner prayer, and physical manifestations of inward attitudes cannot be overstated. The content of the texts that make up this work overflow with explicit directives regarding the implementation of these disciplines in the spiritual life. The third common assumption among the writers of the Philokalia is an agreement that there is a definite order to the process of illumination. One cannot merely enter into the practice of contemplation, but rather one must begin by practicing the virtues. Once the virtues have been developed and worked out in a person's life, then the practice of contemplation may be undertaken. For example, in his ascetic discourse, St. Nilos the ascetic suggested that it is imperative in the spiritual direction of beginners, quote, to urge them first to acquire the inward state needed for so great a task, and not to undertake it without adequate preparation. He continues, in the spiritual life, more than anywhere else, the proper order and sequence must be observed from the start. St. Nilus used two analogies to emphasize his point. First, he compared the spiritual life to being a guest at a dinner. Though certain courses may seem more appetizing than others, I for one would be happy to skip to dessert, the guest must receive each course in the order in which it comes. St. Nilus then reminded his reader of the biblical account of Jacob, who, though he loved Rachel, first worked seven years for Leah and then another seven for Rachel. Following the process in its given order is a crucial factor in the attainment of holiness. Not only is it understood that there is an order in which one progresses in the spiritual life, but also there is a surprising degree of consistency in what that order is. The poem, The Ladder of Divine Graces, found in the third volume of the Philokalia, describes the ten steps to perfection, starting with pure prayer. Here is the poem. The first step is that of purest prayer. From this there comes a warmth of heart, and then a strange, a holy energy, then tears wrung from the heart, God-given, then peace from thoughts of every kind. From this arises purging of the intellect, and next the vision of heavenly mysteries. Unheard of light is born from this ineffably, and thence, beyond all telling, the heart's illumination. Last comes a step that has no limit, though compassed in a single line, perfection that is endless. The steps on this ladder are not for the disciple to climb at will. It is aptly named, for it is only the grace of God which brings about the latter nine steps, from the warmth of heart to the holy energy, divine visions, and eventually perfection. The role of the teachings in the Philokalia is to lead the disciple to the first step of pure prayer, and in order to achieve that first step, there is also a clearly dictated order. The passions must be denied, the virtues practiced, and then the intellect must descend into the heart in the practice of pure prayer. This role of the intellect in the way of perfection is a fourth point held in common among the contributors to this text. Among all of the writers, and indeed throughout the long history of the Christian tradition, the intellect has a prominent role to play in the life of faith. St. Maximus the Confessor wrote, 
Without the power of intelligence, there is no capacity for spiritual knowledge. In prayer, the intellect must be attentive to God. Pervasive throughout the text is the idea that the intellect must descend into the heart in order to achieve pure prayer. Indeed, it is the purpose of the psychosomatic technique of the hesychasts in bowing the head and focusing the gaze on the navel to bring the intellect literally nearer to the heart. In doing so, the prayer goes from being an oral utterance to a mental prayer, and finally, when the intellect and the heart become one, it is the prayer of the heart. St. Philotheus of Sinai wrote, Let us go forward with the heart completely attentive and the soul fully conscious. I want to turn now to The Way of a Pilgrim, a Russian spiritual classic which gives us an example of how the teachings of the Philokalia were applied in the life of one character. This book tells the story of a Russian peasant who was crippled in one arm. Because of this physical handicap, in childhood he was taught to read and write so that he might have some means of employment. The story begins when the pilgrim has heard the text of the Apostle Paul in which he commands Christians to pray without ceasing. The pilgrim felt compelled to discover how one could possibly pray continually, and so he set out on a journey to seek the answers to this dilemma. As he wandered about Russia in the tradition of the Holy Fool, he met a variety of people, some of whom attempted to help him understand how to pray unceasingly, but without much success. After a year of traveling, he finally came to a monastery where he was able to meet with a starets. The Startsi were monks who were known for their personal holiness and their ability to guide people on their spiritual journeys. This Staretz used the Philokalia to teach the pilgrim how to pray. After a time, the Staretz died. The pilgrim continued his journey, but this time he had some idea of how to pray without ceasing. Along the way, he was employed by various individuals for different tasks. He continued to practice what the Staretz had taught him, and after a time he had made enough money to purchase his own copy of the Philokalia. Throughout the rest of his journey, he continued to read it and to practice praying according to its instructions. He had an assortment of adventures along the way, and he interacted with a variety of both believing and unbelieving individuals. So how did the author of The Way of a Pilgrim interpret and apply the aspects of the Philokalia that I've been discussing here? Well, for starters, the pilgrim's journey took place within the context of the Russian Orthodox liturgy. Indeed, his journey began after he attended a service and heard the reading of the epistle of St. Paul to the Thessalonians, in which he commands them pray without ceasing. The pilgrim explained, This verse especially fixed itself in my mind, and I began to wonder how one could pray unceasingly, since each man must occupy himself with other matters as well in order to make a living. I love the way he frames this because it continues to have resonance in our own context today. How can I, as an employee, a wife, a mother, a daughter, and so on, set my mind on unceasing prayer and still fulfill these other roles? As he sat about finding an answer, the pilgrim searched within the resources of church life. He attended sermons on prayer. He visited churches renowned for their teachers, and he eventually sought out the counsel of a spiritual father at a monastery. After discovering the Philokalia and being discipled by the Staretz, he continued to practice the things he had learned in an ongoing way within the setting of regular worship, study of the scriptures, and the communal life of the church. The context of hesychasm is also evident in the pilgrim's endeavors to pray without ceasing. 
The primary method which the Staretz taught him was indeed the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. After the death of his mentor, when the pilgrim left the monastery and began to continue on his way, he sought out a place of solitude where he could reside and develop his newfound knowledge of Hezekast prayer. As he progressed in the teachings of the Philokalia, the, the pilgrim began to use the psychosomatic techniques of the Hezekasts as well. He described the method he used after reading St. Gregory of Sinai, Callistus, and Ignatius. He wrote, By concentrating my mind in the heart while visualizing it in my mind, I inhaled, saying, Lord Jesus Christ, and then exhaled, saying, Have mercy on me. It is, in fact, through the Jesus prayer that he finds the answer to his quest. By having the name of Jesus always on his lips, the pilgrim enters into the prayer of the heart and finally achieves his end by praying without ceasing. When asked by an acquaintance whether the Jesus prayer or the Bible is more exalted, he replied, It's all the same, for the divine name of Jesus Christ contains within itself all the biblical truths. The Holy Fathers say that the Jesus prayer is the abbreviated version of the entire Bible. The importance and necessity of following a particular order in the progression of the way of holiness is also evident in quite a fascinating turn of events in the way of a pilgrim. After the death of the Staretz, when the pilgrim has managed to purchase a copy of the Philokalia, he continued to read it and to practice what he was learning. Eventually, however, he became confused and could not understand what he was reading. The deceased Staretz then appeared to him in a dream and explained a particular order in which he should read the Philokalia since he was a beginner on this spiritual path. The Staretz marked the order in his book and explained the following. This holy book is full of great wisdom. It is a mystical treasury of the meanings of the hidden judgments of God. It is not made accessible everywhere and to everyone, but it does offer instruction according to the measure of each reader's understanding. Thus, to the wise, it offers wise guidance, while to the simple-minded, it yields simple guidance. That is why you simple-minded ones should not read it section by section in the order that the teachings of the different Holy Fathers are printed in the book. When the pilgrim awoke from the dream, the Staretz markings were there in his copy of the Philokalia. He followed the order set out by the Staretz, and his confusion vanished. It is interesting to note that the influence of this order outlined by the Staretz was not limited to the life of this Russian peasant, nor even to the pages of The Way of a Pilgrim. In the late 1940s, Father Nikon of Karulia endorsed an English translation of the Philokalia. He instructed the translators to follow precisely the same format as outlined in The Pilgrim's Dream by the Staretz. Finally, the role of the intellect was also emphasized in the pilgrim's experiences, and he expressed the desire to achieve interior prayer by bringing the mind into the heart. After his dream, when the pilgrim began to read the Philokalia in the order outlined by the Staretz, he began to understand more of what he was reading. He wrote, the meaning of interior prayer was revealed clearly to my understanding, and again at times my former foolish understanding was so illumined that suddenly I was able to ponder and comprehend so easily what previously I could not have even imagined. He also had some revealing encounters with the modern world in which his intellect had to cope with the tensions between faith and reason. After a miraculous escape from a wolf with the help of his tchotchke, a chotki is a kind of rosary or prayer rope. The pilgrim related his tale to a teacher he met in an inn. 
the teacher interpreted this miracle with a pseudo-scientific, pseudo-religious explanation, linking the wolf to its ancestors in the Garden of Eden and the Chotki to the innocence of Adam through the holiness of the pilgrim who used it in prayer. The pilgrim was satisfied with this attempt to merge the reasonable with the miraculous. He then related to the teacher his dream of the deceased starets. The teacher once again produced a reasoned yet mystical theory which allowed spiritual beings to have the ability to manipulate matter, just as the starets had written in the Philokalia. The pilgrim was also pleased with this effort to explain the unbelievable, and as he departed on his way, he gave thanks to God for his encounter with this teacher. A third party to these discussions was an unbelieving clerk who expressed doubt and disdain for their mystical beliefs. The pilgrim responded to these doubts by praying that the clerk might have the opportunity to read the Philokalia at least once and through it be saved. By way of conclusion, I would like to give some consideration to how the church today might benefit from the teachings of the Philokalia, but also to note the limitations on our ability to appropriate these ancient models of discipleship. I have outlined four main assumptions that frame the teachings of the Philokalia, and I have traced how those assumptions play out in the example of the pilgrim from the way of a pilgrim. I think these four assumptions continue to have relevance for us in our practices of discipleship today. The first point was that these teachings and the practices they promote bear fruit in the context of the liturgical and sacramental life of the church. Discipleship is meant to be rooted in the practices of corporate worship, corporate study of the scriptures, and corporate experience of the Lord's Supper. I doubt you are missing my emphasis here. In the last hundred years of the history of Christianity, I think we have seriously overestimated our ability to pursue the life of holiness on our own. We are not autonomous individual selves. We need each other. We need guidance. We need discipline. Spiritually mature Christians have an important role to play. This is a corporate endeavor. Discipleship happens in the context of the communal life of the church. Hesychasm also provides a set of practices that can help us grow in our experience of God. We live in a very busy culture. We have more leisure time than any previous culture in history, and yet we fill it so full that we can't hear our own thoughts, let alone the voice of God. The Philokalia teaches a set of ancient hesychastic practices that invite us to experience God by entering into spaces of solitude, by developing the habit of having the name of Jesus always on our lips, and by applying psychosomatic techniques that remind us that we are embodied creatures and that our minds and bodies are designed for unified action. The texts of the Philokalia also remind us that there is an order to the process of growing in holiness. Medieval Christians loved thinking about the ordering of things. Christianity has a long tradition of analyzing the spiritual life and identifying stages of growth. We would do well to heed these texts. Our culture wants to affirm each person and free them up to take whatever path pleases them. But this doesn't align with human experience. If we want to know God and to grow in holiness, there is a well-trod path we can follow. We must deny the passions, practice the virtues, and discipline our intellects to be attentive to God. And this brings us to the final point, that our intellect has a prominent role to play in the life of faith. The ancients talked about bringing the mind into the heart. 
we have the privilege of living in an era that allows us easy access to centuries of texts written by those who dedicated their lives to knowing God and walking with him. Those messages in bottles that are waiting for us to pluck them out of the sea. I invite you to pick up copies of The Way of a Pilgrim and the Philokalia as resources for the spiritual life. They are especially helpful for discipling in the life of prayer. That said, I mentioned that I would reflect on the limitations on our ability to appropriate ancient models of discipleship, and I will conclude with a word of warning on this front. In the way of a pilgrim, the Philokalia played an important role in helping the pilgrim learn how to pray and to grow as a disciple of Jesus. But he couldn't rely on the Philokalia alone, even as a means of acquiring the wisdom recorded in it. He needed the guidance of spiritual elders and the community of believers around him in order to walk this path of discipleship. In his context, that was not countercultural. He didn't have to think about it to engage the text in a way that was rooted in the life of the church. He was already immersed in a worshiping community. But for us, especially in the 21st century Western world, we are deeply isolated individuals. We need to be careful not to underestimate the significance of the church body in the work of discipleship. This is not a road to walk alone. Read these texts in community and hold them in close communication with the practices of worshiping and studying the scriptures together. Blessings on you as you seek to grow in faith.